is a spiritual principle as well. And what's amazing is, is when you lose immaterial things, it creates a hassle. But oftentimes, we don't really think too much about people who get lost. I mean, obviously, if you lose somebody, if somebody goes missing, that's one thing. But people who are far from God, God sees them as lost. And what's amazing is, is Jesus wants us to always go find those who are lost. Have you ever lost your wallet? When you discovered that it was missing, what did you do? You began retracing your steps, tearing up the couch cushions, looking in the floorboards of your car. In today's message, Pastor Daniel is going to show you that God seeks after his lost children with an even greater urgency than that. Your lost wallet is a hassle for sure. God's lost child is a soul that he loves more than his very life. Will you seek after them too? Now, here's Pastor Daniel in Luke chapter 15 as he begins his message, Find What is Lost. So you know what the absolute worst thing is? Maybe not the absolute worst, but one of the worst things is when you lose something. Am I the only one who absolutely can't stand losing things. It's such a big thing for me, losing things that I don't like, that I actually am almost like completely OCD with the things that I need the most. Because I realize that if I leave certain things up to chance, I'm going to definitely lose everything. So I'm the kind of person where everything goes back exactly to the place where I know it's supposed to be, so that when I need it, I can get it. Am I the only person around here who's like that? Okay, a couple of you. So now what's amazing is, is I'm married to someone who's the exact opposite of that. Now, my bride, Lynn, and those of you who know Lynn know that Lynn is one of the most amazing people you could ever meet. And people say, man, your wife, she's like perfect. And I'm like, oh, yeah, she is. Except for the fact. And I didn't know this when I got married either, is that when we got married, and you know, it's the beauty of when you're walking with the Lord and God brings you together and you try and do all those things right. So like Lynn and I never lived together or anything. So there's all sorts of things I didn't know about my wife until I got married to her. And I remember, it must have been like the fourth day that we were married, all of a sudden, Daniel, what's wrong? I can't find my keys. And I'm like, oh no, you know, because right as you lose something, you automatically, I mean, at least in my brain, it goes to, oh man, if you lose all the keys, then I got to get new keys, and do I even have a key, and what else is on that keychain? You know, like the whole thing goes down, like, you, like your brain does the download of all the extra work you're going to have to do to fix what just got lost, only to realize that we found our keys, and then sure enough, like a day later, Daniel, I can't find my cell phone. Now, this was before the day and age where you could find your phone with someone else's phone. You know, and so we couldn't find her. And finally, after about like a month of this, now, I'm not the most patient person. God knows, and, and God's working on it, right? And so when we first got married, I would get all frustrated, like, man, well, don't you know where your keys are? Like, you know, don't you know where your phone is? And even my like kind of frustrated pleas, I didn't realize as a newly married guy that that doesn't work, right? And so I thought it was going to like, it would get some traction. And so finally, I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? And I got a bowl. I was at the thrift store. I bought a bowl. And I put the bowl on top of the fridge. And I said, sweetie, you see that bowl right there? She's like, yeah, it's ugly. I'm like, guess what? That's your keys and cell phone bowl. 
And I'm like, when you walk into the house, I want you to put the keys and the cell phone in the bowl. And she's like, why? I'm like, so that you know where they are. Now, for those of you who have spouses who lose keys, the bowl is your friend, right? Now, what's amazing is, is that it really worked. And even Linda, after a while, she would just come in, she put her keys and her, and her cell phone in the bowl, you know, and she's like, you know, it's really awesome not having to look for my keys all the time. I'm like, isn't it? <laughs> now, I bring that up because I love telling you fun things about my wife, and she's amazing. And I don't, listen, I mean, if the worst thing my wife's got going for her that she can't find her keys in her cell phone, man, I got me a winner, okay? <laughs> Big time, and I know that. But the, when you lose something, the amount of stress that it creates, right? I mean, like, it's funny. I almost never lose things because I'm so OCD, but when I do, it freaks me out. You know, because like if you lose your wallet, you realize, okay, what's in the wallet, right? And you're like, okay, so I got to change my account with the bank. If I need to go to the doctors, that's in there, a bunch of credit cards. You have all these things and you're like, oh, this is bad, you know? And then of course, if your license is in there, you're like, I don't want to go to the DMV, you know? (laughs) Now I realize because we live in the Northwest, like I grew up in New Jersey and I lived in California, so I know DMV horror. Right, where we live is not nearly as bad. You walk into—I remember the first time I walked in the DMV in Washington. Our brother uh, Russell, he's like Pastor Daniel. I'm like, excuse me, you know, because I moved up here, I was going to get my license, you know. And and he's like Pastor Daniel. My name is—I go to Crossroads, and I'm like, this is such a unique DMV experience right now, you know. Now, I don't know if he put me to the front of the line, so I just like rolled right through there. But I was out of the DMV with my license and all my cars registered in like 13 minutes. I'm like, this is God's land. <laughs> I was not used to I remember going to California. I had to like book a whole day to go get your driver's license, you know? Anyway, I don't know how I got on that. But when you lose something, it kind of freaks you out a little bit. Now, what's amazing is, is this is a spiritual principle as well. And what's amazing is, is when you lose immaterial things, it creates a hassle. But oftentimes, we don't really think too much about people who get lost. I mean, obviously, if you lose somebody, if somebody goes missing, that's one thing. But people who are far from God, God sees them as lost. And what's amazing is, is Jesus wants us to always go find those who are lost. And so today's parable that we're going to see in our legend series gets right at that. So I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. Luke 15, verses 1 to 10, our next installment in the legend series, a message that I'm calling, Find What is Lost. Now, of course, you brought your Bibles with you to church today. I know you did. You all got uh, gold stickers for doing it. I'm not just making this stuff up. This is the Bible, the word of God. We're actually studying the teachings of Jesus. These things are parables. So I want you to read along so you realize, like, it's not like this guy's just making this stuff up. This is stuff that Jesus said. So look what it says. And Luke's gospel, of course, it's third book in your New Testament. You have the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then the fourth one is John. So if you find John, make a left. If you're at Mark, make a right. If you're at Luke, find chapter 15. It says this. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him, speaking of Jesus, to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And so he spoke this parable to them, saying, verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? 
And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which is lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I have lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, this story, and I want to take these first three verses first. Before Jesus starts to speak, we get the setup or the context of what's going on. Now, what you find is that Jesus' ministry is increasing in popularity, right? So this man, this prophet, Jesus of Nazareth, who's going around teaching, he's doing miracles, the word is out on Jesus. And so people are really fascinated. And not only are there religious people, the people who are inclined to the kingdom of God or the things of God, but just the normal people, not just the normal everyday people. So not the religious, only the religious elite or the normal everyday people. But here we find that all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Now the tax collectors and the sinners in Jesus' day were the two most maligned groups of people amongst the religious people, right? So these were people who lived in such a way that was offensive to the you know, religious glitterati of the day, the, the religious elite of the day. And the tax collectors, of course, they made their living on the fact that the children of Israel were being oppressed by the Romans, Right? So the tax collectors, they were considered anti-Jewish people, although they were Jewish people. And if you read the writings of the Roman emperors and, and the leaders in the midst of the Roman Empire, they were really smart because what they would do is they would auction off the, a region to people and say, if you win this auction, you can collect taxes for the Romans and you have a certain amount you have to give us and whatever else you get, guess what? It's yours. And so it was a very lucrative business because you can imagine if, imagine if the federal government did that. Listen, you, we're going to auction off the ability to collect taxes in Clark County or, or Portland or, or, or the Portland metro area, right? And every single year you have to give X number of dollars and anything you make above that, guess what? That's your profit. You can imagine somebody who doesn't care about how you're making your money would say, hey, that sounds like a great gig. She's like, they need this much, I have this many people, I got this amount, you know, you can do the math, and you're like, man, I can get loaded, totally rich, doing this. And that's exactly what the Romans did. So the tax collectors and the sinners, they were completely, completely marginalized. But look at what happens. It says, and the Pharisees, verse 2, and the scribes complained, saying, this man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So you see, these two marginalized groups, because of the way that they're living, they love to hear Jesus. And then Jesus says he, what, received sinners and he ate with them. Now, what does this teach us? This teaches us that Jesus loves the lost. Jesus loves the lost. See, Jesus never says, you have to become like me. You have to do what I think is right for me to love you. And my friends, this is huge. This is a huge reality because Jesus has no problem welcoming people from wherever they're coming from. 
And not only welcoming them, that word receives can be translated welcome, but he also eats with them. Now, what's amazing is that eating with somebody in that culture implied a almost a oneness or a recognition of who they are. I always make the joke that, you know, we live in a day and age and it's, we live in a, for the most part, a more proper culture, right? So like double dipping is bad, right? It's like if you go somewhere and there's some food there, it's like, you know, or if you go to a, like a nice Italian restaurant, you know, they always have like the, the olive oil with the garlic cloves in it, you know what I mean? And, and, and they give you like a little side dish. Or if you like to eat sushi, you know what I'm talking about? You put a little wasabi in there, you put a little bit of your, you know, your low sodium soy sauce in there. Because, you know, you need a low sodium in the midst of this whole thing. And you get your own and the person across from you get their own, but you're almost never sharing the dips, right? Why? Because that's just gross, Right? Because, you know, you're eating with someone and they're like, take a bite and eat again. And you're like, ew. Right? Back in Jesus' day, they didn't do that. There was one dipping cup. And, every, you know, and, and, and it, was, it was long before, like, you had, like, the nice bread that was perfectly sliced up. You would just rip a piece of it off and you just dip it in there. And this was in a culture that didn't, everyone didn't have a shower in their house. Or antibacterial soap. Nasty. Right? So eating with people, it implied a oneness with them, right? And so this, for the Pharisees, they were like, whatever you do, you don't eat with those type of people because they might rub off on you. By eating with them, you're saying, we're one together. And what's amazing is, is that's what a religious spirit will do. A religious spirit will say, you shouldn't spend any time with those people, right? And let's just be honest, because I'm here talking in church. A lot of us have that religious spirit. You have the Pharisee spirit. I mean, I can't believe that. You know, why would that person be with that person? Well, it's quite simple because Jesus loves lost people. And it's impossible to change someone's life if you won't have any relationship with them. It's impossible. See, this message is so important to me because I think it's important to Jesus. And it's also who we are as a church. It's also one of the reasons why many of you have found Jesus here. And it's also a reason why some people get nervous when it comes to crossroads. I love it when I hear the critiques of other ministry leaders who aren't part of Crossroads about Crossroads. Because it's almost always right here. Because really what's going on here is Jesus knows if he doesn't meet somebody, he can't change their life. And in order to meet somebody, see, you can't do the work of the kingdom devoid of relationship. That's what it is. See, what a lot of believers want to do today. They want the message of Jesus to go out. They just don't actually have to get their hands dirty with anybody who's not a Christian, right? And so what happens is, is the church tries to do everything from an arm's length, but that is not incarnational ministry like Jesus. Jesus like, okay, you want to hear me? Let's break bread together. Let's sit down and talk. See, there was never ministry at a distance with Jesus. It was always up close and personal. That's what he does with you. Isn't it true? That's what he does with me. Jesus loves the lost. Why? Because he created them. Every single human being, no matter where they are in their spiritual journey, they've been created by God and they are image bearers of God. Now what's amazing is, is not only someone who is completely gone from the Lord, but even those of us who have come home and put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are still image bearers of God, although that image is flawed. Like God's image in your life and in my life has been warped by sin, but the image is there. See, the paradox, if I can use that word of humanity, is that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, created in the image and likeness of God, and then we're also fatally flawed. And when you're born again, you acknowledge your fatal flaw and you put your faith and trust in Jesus, but you still realize that God's image that he placed upon you 
by being a human and God's intentions for humanity, that we all bear that image, but a little broken. And the only difference between somebody who's lost and somebody who's found is the fact that somebody who's found said yes to Jesus. And Jesus said, you were lost. Like, yeah, I realize that now. That's the only difference. And of course, the presence of the spirit transforming our life from within, that's a huge game changer. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you realize that the presence of the Holy Spirit only reminds you how jacked up you are, even though you believe in Jesus. Isn't it true? That's how I always know. When someone comes to me like, man, Pastor Dana, I was, I'm so convicted by this thing. I'm like, praise God. They always freak out when I say that. What do you mean, praise God? I just said I'm convicted. I'm like, I know. That's proof you're God's child. Because if you weren't convicted, you wouldn't be God's kid. Because whom God loves, he disciplines. And he disciplines you by the conviction of the Spirit. And I always remind people, I'm like, you realize that there are millions of people who do the exact thing. They don't even think twice about it. They don't think it's bad. They think it's wrong. You know it's wrong. That's how you know you're God's kid. Why? Because God loves us. And see, the problem with things that are lost is they're just in the wrong spot. See, the reason, according to the Bible, somebody is lost is because they're away from Jesus. And when you're away from Jesus, then you have no internal checking mechanism to keep you from getting farther lost. But no matter how far gone you are, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you instantly become found again. And then God begins to transform you by the work of his spirit, by convicting you of all these things. Now, when you first come to to faith in Jesus, sometimes God's just dealing with the big things, like these huge things, these huge life issues. He's not even dealing with the more subtle heart issues. Because he's got to get the big things out of the way to deal with the more subtle things. It's kind of like if you go to the doctor and you're all mangled up, the doctor will deal with the most critical thing first. It's like you go there, maybe you have a car accident or something, and your insides are all, they're going to keep you alive first, and then they're going to deal with the plastic surgery on your nose that's crooked now later. Because one's essential, and if you get through all this stuff, then we can deal with this other thing. Same thing with the way Jesus works. When you first come to know Jesus, he deals with huge lifestyle problems that are destructive to you in this society. And then, after he works away all those other things, now he's like, okay, now I'm going to get into this little, this very nuanced work of things in your heart. See, Jesus had no problem being in the midst of these folks. And and listen, John 3, 16 and 17, these classic verses explain this to us. You guys all know this, you've heard this a million times. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Now, I think verse 17 is the perfect explanation of verse 16. For it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, you hear what he said? Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. And then it goes on, Jesus says, that the problem is that the world's condemned already. So a world that is lost from God is already condemned by nature of the very way that it works. But Jesus did not come to condemn. He came to save because the world was already condemned without him. Now, here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to get this right. Because if you think that the job of the church is to condemn everyone, guess what? You are not part of the church. Because God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world. It's already condemned. It doesn't need the condemnation. It is experiencing the birth pangs of that condemnation every single moment of its existence. God sent Jesus to save the world. And guess what? You can't save what you won't get close to. Jesus loves the lost. 
I love when people say, oh, you know, Crossroads, like you guys will accept anybody there. I'm like, anyone's allowed to come to Crossroads. I'm here to tell you, listen, because I know there's some of you right now, you're like, I don't know if I should be here. You're absolutely should be here. Because you know what this church is? This church is full of all sorts of people got all sorts of issues. Every single one of us. Every person in here, their life is messy in all different ways. But here's the thing. Jesus loving the lost and being with them doesn't mean he partook of all the things they partook of. He was willing to be present, but not be the same as. Here's what I want to tell you. Jesus loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you like that. And I'm here to tell you, everyone's allowed to come to Crossroads. But if you come to Crossroads, nobody is going to be told, just stay just as you are. Because Jesus wants to transform all of us, me included. Amen. So we all show up and Jesus receives us and then Jesus starts to get to work on us. And all we say is we just want to keep simply responding to Jesus. We want Jesus to transform whatever he wants to do. So someone, I met someone recently, they said, well, you know, you know this is who I am and where I've been and what, what I do and all this stuff. Am I allowed to be at Crossroads? I'm like, absolutely. I'm like, but if you want Crossroads to be the kind of church that says you just keep doing that, no big deal, you're going to be really disappointed with us. Because I'm like, and it's not just this one thing, it's everything. Jesus says, I want to do a work in your life. I want to transform your life. So I hope that you feel uncomfortable sometimes at Crossroads. I hope that as you hear the word of God, you're like, ooh. Because that is what God does to his kids to change us. He makes us uncomfortable in the status quo and he gives us a new vision. See, Jesus loved, the Pharisees couldn't stand it. But Jesus did not allow the Pharisees' issues to change the ministry he was doing. Now, I think that's important because for some of you, God has called you to things and you've gotten some censure from the religious folks. Don't let it change. Listen, if someone's bringing you the scriptures and saying, well, this is what the scriptures say and maybe you got this wrong, that's a different thing. But the Pharisees, they didn't have the heart of God, although they were deeply religious. And they didn't allow the critique of the critiquers to change the ministry that he was doing. So then he starts to tell these two parables. Now, there's these two stories. There's the parable of the lost sheep, and then there's the parable of the lost coin. Now, I'm going to take them together because they actually fit together. They actually essentially say the same thing, but from two different angles. You notice the first one, it's the man having 100 sheep, right? And then the second one, it's the woman who has the lost coin now? So notice it's uh, it's really gender neutral here. You have men and women who are involved in this. Now it is interesting. The man is working outside of the home, and the woman is working inside of the home, which is the way the culture functioned in that day. Okay, so in each area of responsibility, there is a situation where something is lost. Now I'll tell it to you this way: that Jesus seeks, finds, and rejoices. Losing something is just the worst, isn't it? When you lose something material like your wallet or your keys, it can create quite a hassle. But God has bigger things on his mind and he wants you to shape your perspective to be just like his. God is far more concerned about the people he loves who are still lost. In today's message, Pastor Daniel showed us that God loves the lost and is constantly searching for them. Everyone needs a little encouragement to get through their day, and we have a way to provide that for you. Pastor Daniel has some excellent advice, truth, 
and love to share in his two-minute messages available on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just go to JesusIsRealRadio.com and click on the social media links to find them. You won't be disappointed, and your day just might get a little brighter. Hey, everybody. This is Pastor Daniel Fusco from Jesus Is Real Radio. I'm so excited about what Jesus is doing through this ministry to change lives and restore His people. Would you consider partnering with us as we continue to share the message of Jesus here on Jesus Is Real Radio? You can find out more and donate securely online at JesusIsRealRadio.com. Thank you for prayerfully considering this. Join us again here on Jesus Is Real Radio when Pastor Daniel will show you from the parables Jesus taught how Jesus operates in the world. He came to seek and save the lost, and he rejoices whenever one person is found. Pastor Daniel will remind you that once you were lost and Jesus found you, now you're his reinforcements. He's sent you into the world to go seek the lost and bring his love to the brokenhearted. We wish we had more time today, but we will have to pick up where we left off next time as Pastor Daniel continues teaching through this series called Legends. That's next time on Jesus Is Real Radio.